Calling all Arizona attorneys. Where are my brothers and sisters at? I hope you are ready to be educated and inspired. Or at least entertained. Because it is time for Cluff's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. I'm your host, Arizona attorney, Brig Clough. My guest today is Larry Wolken. Larry is a partner at Stinson. He has prosecuted and defended civil rights actions involving police and detention officers. His practice is now focused on representing plaintiffs in personal injury cases, although he does occasionally still do some defense work. He's a good friend and part of the circle of attorneys with whom I often discuss cases. In today's episode, we discuss what role should lawyers play in the relationship between the police and society at large. So here we are, podcasting, me and Larry, my old buddy from law school, my amigo that is uh, also a, a fellow Star Wars fan. Larry, how far back do we go now? Well, we graduated law school in 2001. Uh, we were friends, I would say, starting at the end of our first year. Is that about right? Um, yeah, I considered you a friend like right away at the beginning of our first year, but I, I do think that's right. I don't think you considered me a friend until about the end. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that's the case. But but so we've known each other for almost 23 years. Dang. That's a long time. Now, now long I feel time. old. I yeah. feel really old. And so we we went to um, the the new Star Wars movie in law school, right? We went right, to the saw, first the first prequel. Yeah. Which was um one of the worst movies I've Phantom ever seen. Phantom Menace. Yeah, it sucked. Because Jar yeah. Jar Binks, what a what a plague on Star Wars. I know. So Larry, right here at the beginning, tell us about your practice. What do you do? Well, since 2001, a substantial part of my practice has involved both defending and suing government actors who are accused of abusing their power. So examples of that are police officers who are said to have used excessive force in dealing with someone that they encounter on the street, or even a medical provider in a jail or a prison who is accused of committing medical malpractice while treating prisoners. Okay, I didn't realize that you had uh, that you had handled some of those uh, prison medical malpractice cases. Um, yeah, not only have I handled them, but I'm certified by the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare as a correctional health professional. And what that means is that I've sat for a test that a lot of doctors and nurses sit for um, to show that I'm proficient in the standards that are specifically applicable to jails and prisons. Wow. I never knew. I could have... You, uh, you, you obviously did not read my bio. Uh, no. Was I supposed website. to read your bio? Well, there's a lot of good information there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so to all of our listeners, go and read Larry's bio on his website. It's, I'm sure, outstanding. Um, I didn't think I had to, frankly, Larry. I, I thought we had remained close enough over the years that you probably <laughs> would have told fault. me stuff like that. So I, I've handled a few uh, cases in that area as well. Your practice is mostly against counties and uh, uh, cities. Is that right? That's right. I haven't, um, I haven't defended Arizona municipalities um, in quite some time, but um, typically cases that I bring are against cities, towns, and counties. How did you end up in this practice area? Well, I started my career defending government actors, primarily police officers. 
And I found that the majority of the time, I felt I was on the right side of those cases. In other words, the I was being accused of acting unreasonably when in fact they were in a tough spot. And uh, even though there may have been a bad result, um, the result was a, re was a product of reasonable or justifiable action. However, as time went on, I found that there were a few cases where really bad things happened to people, and those people were not hiring quality lawyers. They were hiring lawyers who may have had flashy websites or may have made promises to those people that were unrealistic. And I thought that my skill set could be used to help that small group of people who have suffered a catastrophic loss as a result of an abuse of power. And that was something that I could feel good about doing. I love it. And I, I can also attest to the idea that uh, you're a true believer. I remember in law school thinking of you as somebody that was really in it for the uh, truth, justice, and the American way uh, ideal. I mean, you it, it was not just a paycheck for you, but you sincerely care about these issues. If I've chosen to represent a client, it means with all of my heart that I believe something bad has happened to them for which they were not at fault. And under those circumstances, I can confidently and aggressively help them achieve a result that they might not otherwise be able to achieve with a lawyer with less experience in this area. But at the same time, the vast majority of people that I talk to who want to hire me, I turn them down. And that's because I will only take a case when I believe that the police or another government actor has acted badly. And I try to stay away from cases where it's a very close call and the government actor or the police officer had to make a split second decision. And that decision turned out to be an unfortunate one. And so I am a true believer in that the cases that I end up taking are the ones where I believe there's been a true abuse of power and one that the law can assist a victim find an answer for. Right. I, I, I'm right there with you. And just to, uh, I think to amplify what you said about the selectivity that you have to uh, employ when you're selecting cases, not only is it about your personal belief in the case, but you also have to believe that you have a good chance of prevailing in that case. Otherwise, it's just uh, economically not feasible uh, usually to pursue cases unless, uh, unless you think you're going to be able to prove that case. And that's all true. And one of the important things to remember is that there's also a toll on the client. Because if you take a case that the client really believes in, but you know in your heart of hearts, there is not a high likelihood of being uh, a, a, there being a successful result. What will inevitably happen is the client will end up disappointed. They'll end up angry. And they'll ask themselves, why did I put myself through the litigation process? And so that's why it's so important to be careful with the cases that you select as a lawyer. And it's important to be tempered with respect to the advice you give to the client about what their expert expectations should be. Yeah, I agree. It, it does have to be both. It, it is not sufficient 
to take a case where you think, well, this, this may not be a great outcome for the client here. And you tell the client, Hey, I don't think that this isn't going to, that this is uh, feasible. I don't think this is going to be a great outcome for you. Um, you can have that conversation and you may have a client that still says, I don't care. I, I want to go for it. Um, and they may sincerely feel that at the time, but it's not likely that they're going to remember feeling that way after they've come to the end of two or three years of grueling litigation. So it's important to temper client expectations, but that only goes so far. One of, one of the things that clients often tell me when they first meet me is that this is a slam dunk case. They tell me as a lawyer, I don't have to worry about there being a recovery in the case because the facts are so good that the government is just going to pay a lot of money to settle early. And in my experience, even with cases with some of the worst facts imaginable, with catastrophic injuries, sometimes including death, there's no such thing as a slam dunk case, as a quick settlement, not today. Today, when you bring a case against a government, a government actor, a law enforcement officer, it's gonna be a grueling two to three years of litigation before that case is resolved in whatever way it's resolved. And that is something that clients have to understand. It's something we have to be prepared for. And it's something that they have to consent to before they hire me. Yeah, amen to that. Um, what you just said is almost, not quite, but almost true of personal injury cases in general. There are occasionally uh, cases in, you know, general personal injury cases that can be settled quickly, the proverbial slam dunk case. But when you're dealing with a government entity, it is almost by definition an impossibility because the government is involved. There are committees involved. It's a political question, and it, it just it, it's just part of the process. It's not unusual when you will bring an action against a government. The government hires a good lawyer, and that lawyer will say, you know, I know there's problems with this case. I know we are likely going to lose in front of a jury. But because I'm representing a police officer, and because the city, the town, the county, whatever, wants to show the police officer that we have his or her back, I just can't settle this case. And so we have to take it all the way to trial. And that happens. Yeah. Or another motivation that sometimes exists. I've seen this in, uh, in cases, you know, you go up against the, uh, a county, you've got a county board of supervisors and you may have a really strong case and everyone may agree that you have a really strong case and everyone may agree that you're probably going to win if you go to trial, but the county supervisors, it's a political office. And that supervisor may think, well, if I approve this settlement, I can't get reelected. I mean, it's the end of my political career if I approve this settlement. On the other hand, if we go to trial and we get creamed at trial, eh, it's not the end of my career. It's just, in fact, it can be a talking point. I, I can hold a press conference and talk about what an outrage it is. And, you know, I can actually use this potentially to my advantage. And so that is a dynamic that sometimes exists that makes it difficult to get cases settled against political bodies. Absolutely. Okay. I wanted to discuss specifically 
uh, in this podcast here, the role that lawyers play or should play in the relationship between the police and society at large. And sure. I'm, so I'm just going to list a few different issues here, and then we can dive deep and, and talk about some of these issues and talk about some examples where these issues um, are, uh, you know, come to the front. But, but here's my list of issues. How do we promote good policing? What is the role of the lawyers in our community of promoting good policing? And we can't get very far on that discussion without defining what is good policing. What's the role of lawyers in thwarting bad policing? What role do lawyers play in protecting the public from police? And what role do lawyers play in protecting police from the public? So those are some questions that um, that I've thought about often over the years. But um, I'll, I'll serve it to you here, Larry. Where, where do you want to start? Well, I think it's important to remember that what we know about policing in large part has to do with two things. One, what we see on television shows, NYPD Blue, Miami Vice. I'm sure there are more recent ones. Uh, yeah. Hmm. They have Can't made remember. a few, they have made a few police shows since the eighties. Uh, CSI Larry. Miami. There, there you go. There you go. CSI New York. <laughs> but what, the public knows about policing often comes from either television shows or the news. Right. And when it comes to the news, many times you will see lawyers who will explain to the public what is happening in certain circumstances. And that generally happens when you have body camera evidence or dash camera evidence of an interaction between a police officer and a person on the street. And it's my sincere belief that if it were not for lawyers and the spotlight that we have placed on law enforcement, you would not see as many or even any body cameras or dash cameras that record police interactions on the street. And I can't stress enough how important that video recording can be. And it's important for a couple of reasons. First, it's a account of what happened that is not shaded by a commentator's perception of what is, isn't, should, or shouldn't be happening. And second, that body camera footage, that recording of that interaction between the police and the person on the street doesn't suffer from memory. If you ask a person about an encounter with a police officer, their recollection of the events will likely be different than the recollection of the police officer of those same events. And what the recording does is it allows people to either criticize the officer's response to the person that he or she is encountering, or it allows the officer to say, look, look what I did in response to what that person was doing to me. And so that body camera footage, that dash cam evidence can serve as both a sword 
to the person or for the person who is trying to demonstrate that police activity was unreasonable, or it can be the best shield there is because the police officer can say, look, I used force against this person. There was a catastrophic result, but the reason I was using that force is because of the situation that I was in. I have noticed that the body cam footage that's helpful to plaintiffs tends to uh, not surface as often as the body cam uh, footage that is helpful to the defendant or that body cams don't get turned on when the police think they're about to do something that they don't want recorded. Because the government has the body cam footage, they get to determine when the footage is released. And so when the officer didn't do anything wrong, but is accused in public of doing something wrong, oftentimes you'll see the body cam footage come very quickly. It gets released to the media, it gets distributed. And um, uh, in those circumstances, there's no problem getting the footage. I've also found that when the footage shows troubling action by the police officer, we usually don't get that body cam footage unless we threaten to sue. What about the situation where the uh, the officers are about to put a beat down on somebody and they don't activate the cameras just before that beat down occurs? You ever have any experience with that? I don't. Um, I've had a lot of experience where the body camera will turn on late in the interaction with the individual on the street, or it will be shut off prematurely before that interaction stops. So you get a snippet in time, but not the whole thing. And there's always various excuses as to why that happens. Sometimes the excuse will be, well, there was a malfunction with the video. Sometimes the excuse will be that the officer just forgot to turn on the body camera. And sometimes the excuse will be that there was a problem with the body camera footage after it was downloaded. And one of the interesting things is the source of these recordings, because not only do you find that uh, officers are, are wearing cameras on their body, and not only will you find that there are cameras on the dash of officers' cars, but now tasers have cameras attached to them as well. And so it's interesting to see when you get what footage. Yeah. Larry, I know that you are a very ethical person and lawyer. Known you for a long time. Um, and I consider myself to be an ethical person and lawyer. Yet, I doubt either one of us would want to have a camera on us at all times, watching our every move. How do we deal with the intrusion that cameras pose to police officers? Well, two things. First, the cameras are not recording the officer's every move. The cameras record those periods of time when the officer is encountering someone on the street for a law enforcement activity. Now, as to how do we balance the officer's desire for privacy with the public good, 
that comes as a result of a recording of the encounter. I think we do that with an eye towards the truth. And what that means is that we should record more of those interactions rather than less of those interactions because that recording provides contemporaneous evidence of what actually happened, which can serve the public good, either in the fact that it exposes bad conduct by the officer, or on the flip side, it shows that the officer may have done everything he or she should have done, was trained to do, and did. And that evidence, that benefit from that evidence outweighs the small inconvenience to the officer that he or she may perceive to be a result of an invasion of their privacy. Okay. I think that I'm with you on that. In fact, I'm definitely with you on that. However, looking at the potential unintended consequences of a policy that says let's record more and not less, I look down the road a ways and I think, okay, um, we're going to be having young people here making career decisions as to what they want to do. And we want to have good police, obviously, right? I mean, uh, that is, uh, that's very important to all of us that we have good police. Uh, if I can uh, detour just a little bit here, Larry, do you ever watch the show um, to go with something a little more current than um, 80s uh, TV? Uh, do you ever watch the show Narcos on Netflix? I've never seen it. Oh, man, it is so good. It is so good. But uh, one of the reasons why it's good is it's, um, it's, it's scary. I mean, you watch it and you're just like, oh, my goodness, I can see how this could happen, and it's just scary. And one of the scariest things about it is the corrupt police forces in these, uh, uh, these drug capitals. And, um, you know, Pablo Escobar has the, you know, Colombian uh, police forces mostly working for him. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the most recent season of Narcos uh, was in Mexico, and you see some of the Mexican police forces that are, you know, on the take from the, uh, the cartels. And it's terrifying. And there's, there's really few things scarier than corrupt police. And in order to not have corrupt police, I think an important part of it is having um, good people choose to go into police work for their career. And I, th I think historically uh, in this country, that is exactly what we've had. Uh, I mean, police are, uh, by and large, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, I think you'll agree, good people doing a good job. And that's the reason why you're very selective in the cases that you take. Um, and and I, I feel the exact same way. But we have a, a pool of people that have chosen those careers that have all these opportunities open to them. And for whatever reasons, policing was an attractive career to them. And one of the concerns that I have is if we are watching them and scrutinizing them too closely it starts to become a non-attractive career for people. What do you think about that? I think it sends a terrible message. If what we're saying is we should not see evidence of the truth 
when it comes to an interaction between the police and an individual on the street, because the process of gathering that evidence could deter good people from entering careers in law enforcement. And I also think that good people who have a calling to law enforcement will accept the fact that their actions will be scrutinized because with great power comes great responsibility and they will know that. And there's no question that police officers hold great power. Not only do they carry weapons on them, but they are one of the few people in society that can lawfully detain another person. They can make an arrest. They can institute criminal proceedings against individuals that they witness commit crimes. And with that responsibility, with that power rather, comes great responsibility. How can we as lawyers enhance the honor and the goodwill that is generally afforded to police officers without giving them a free pass when they do violate the rights of citizens of this country? The law has a presumption that police officers' actions are reasonable. There's a doctrine in the law called qualified immunity. And what that doctrine says is that in close cases where officers have to make split second decisions, the courts will not judge those decisions unless the officer intended to violate the law or the officer violated a clearly established right. And what that means for lawyers who are looking at police action and speaking to their clients about that action is that we have to look at the interaction objectively. And we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a reasonable officer and ask, what would a reasonable officer have done in those circumstances? And if it's a close call and the officer just made a mistake, be it because of a mistake of fact or a mistake of law, then the lawyer should recognize and explain to the client and the public that the law affords the officer breathing room. Too many times we see lawyers who want to be supportive of their clients prejudge police officers' activities without knowing all of the facts or at least not knowing enough of the facts to understand really what that officer was facing at the time he or she did whatever he or she did. Lawyers have to be careful. Lawyers should be careful in jumping to conclusions. Lawyers should be careful before going before the media. Lawyers should be careful before giving their clients advice about the likely outcomes of their cases. They should be careful to not do those things until they have a full understanding of what that officer was confronting. Larry, as we sit here today, we are in the midst of the zombie apocalypse, right? 
the coronavirus pandemic lockdown. Um, you're you're at your home. I'm at my home. We're doing this uh, podcast remotely, um, and it's been very interesting to me to see how uh, the public seems to be reacting to all of this. In the last 20 years, you find that the demographic of people who are supporting the police are on one end of the political spectrum, the uh, the red state people, and you find another end of the political spectrum, the blue state people, who are much more concerned about people that are being victimized by the police. And so you've got this you know, these battle lines that have been drawn for many years. Um, you've got the Black Lives Matter side, the Blue Lives Matter side. And frankly, I think that those kinds of uh, divisions are, are so harmful to, to all of us um, because they, when you say something like that, uh, well, Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, uh, kind of implicit in your statement is, and by the way, I don't think that you believe that. I don't think you value black lives or blue lives. And it's just, a, it's an accusatory type of mantra, I think. And, and as the battle lines get drawn, then you start to have battles, which can be very bad. I think we should try to avoid battles here in our society where we can. But one of the interesting things to me is that the people that I generally see as being very much on the side of the police in these kinds of types of confrontations generally are voicing a lot of displeasure at police for enforcing pandemic lockdown policy. You see protesters, I, there was a group of protesters in Michigan that I saw not long ago that are marching up the state capitol that look like uh, look like they're uh, you know special forces about to go in and uh, you know invade government and you're hearing a lot of anti-police type of rhetoric coming out of um, a demographic that I generally see as being very pro-police. It's a very dangerous thing. And I wonder, how do we promote partnership between police and community rather than adversarialness that seems to be on the rise? The thing that lawyers can do to help people understand what they should do is they can explain to those people the law. And the situation that you were describing where there were defiant groups who were protesting and not following the stay-at-home orders, well, those people are breaking the law. The governor in whatever state they were in issued an executive order that made certain actions, usually congregating in public, illegal. And by and large, Citizens don't have the right to pick and choose which laws they want to follow. They can challenge laws that they believe are unconstitutional through the court system. But what they can't do is elect to break the law. And from a sociological standpoint, it's always interesting that sometimes you find the people who are typically very pro-law enforcement, pro-law and order, well, they believe that it is safe to hold those views because they will never be on the wrong side of the law. 
And then comes a stay-at-home order. And they believe that that is a law they just won't follow. And then they find themselves in a situation that they never imagined, where a police officer would be telling them to do something that they don't want to do. And as lawyers, what we can do is we can explain to those people, here's what the law is. And if you don't believe that it is a constitutional law, there are ways for you to challenge it through the court system, which don't put you at danger for prosecution and don't put the public at danger because you are doing what you are not supposed to do. What those people are really doing is they are saying that the law in this case doesn't apply to me. And when we start having people follow through on that belief, you get to a, a society of lawlessness, and that is dangerous. Well, that is for sure. My personal um, approach to cases against police officers is that I, I do not see myself as bringing a case against the police as some monolith. In fact, it is just the opposite of that. Uh, I view myself as working on behalf of the police as a monolith. The police as a group, I don't have a quarrel with them. I, I applaud the work that they're doing. I think it's great. I help to uphold the work that they are doing by bringing the bad actors, which there are a few of them, to justice. And I think that uh, you, uh, you know, based on the things that you've said, operate exactly the same way. I think most of us do. However, there are a few of us <laughs> who paint with very uh, broad brushstrokes, and I think that that is uh, very counterproductive to relations between uh, the public and the police, uh, to say nothing of relations between lawyers and the police. In every profession, there are bad apples. There are bad doctors. There are bad police officers. There are bad teachers. And there are even bad lawyers. That's going to be very hard for people to believe, Larry. <laughs> Especially the part about lawyers. That's right. But the truth is that humans are not infallible. Humans commit mistakes. Humans make bad errors in judgment. And the law exists to provide a remedy to victims who suffer from bad conduct. And when lawyers talk to clients and talk to the public about the role of lawyers in or ensuring that there's good community policing, they need to keep that in mind, that people make mistakes. Some of those mistakes are reasonable. Some of those mistakes are unreasonable. And we should not paint entire groups like police departments, governments. We shouldn't paint them with broad strokes. Amen, brother. Larry, well done. A pleasure to speak to you as always. Stay Take healthy. care, bye. That is it for this episode of Clough's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. Thank you to my guests and listeners. Be sure to share this show with all your lawyer friends. And if you have an idea for the show, give me a call or send me an email at brig at cloughinjurylawyers.com 
I'll see you soon.